0: So we're starting a new series on First Peter today. For the next five weeks, we're going to cover one chapter each week in First Peter. Uh, if you haven't read your Bible front to back, you maybe have never read either the letters of Peter. A lot of people haven't. You might be saying, why in the world do you pick that book? It's little. It's towards the end of the Bible. What's the big deal with it? I'll tell you part of the reason why is the words of that song. Peter was in the presence of the living Jesus. Peter knew him. Peter spent three years as a disciple of Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Peter also met the risen Jesus. What Peter writes about, Peter knows from firsthand experience. Paul writes with great conviction, but there's nothing, there's no direct line that says that the Apostle Paul ever met Jesus. Peter knew him. Peter knew The presence of Jesus and what it was like to be in the presence of Jesus. And this letter, as you're going to find out already today, Peter wants to help us understand that you and I live our lives constantly in the presence of Jesus. That's just that's the way it is. And, And Peter writes this thing and his focus and the themes that he keeps coming back to are all about. Just remember that he's always there. He's always with you. And so with that, if you've got your Bibles, find 1 Peter. It's towards the end of the Bible. If you've never been in 1 Peter before and you hit Revelation, you've got to go back a few pages because you went too far. One of the things about Peter that's sort of unique is that we've got a lot of information about this guy. We don't have to try to put pieces together with with stuff that we're not real sure about. The Bible itself gives us A lot of information on Peter, a lot of detail. Uh, We know, for example, that he was married and that his mother-in-law had a home in Capernaum. I showed you a picture of that last week and that when Jesus was in Capernaum and in the North Galilee area, he stayed at Peter's mother-in-law's house. We also know that Peter was a fisherman, because that is how the Bible says that he was called. He was a businessman. He was a a working guy. He lived his life uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, likely in a, a village just up the hill from the actual coast. We know that he was not initially called Peter. He was named Peter. His original name was Simon. Jesus named him Peter a little while later. He was introduced to Jesus By his brother John. Excuse me, John tells us he was introduced by his brother Andrew. Andrew had met Jesus and he was so impacted by him that he brought his brother Simon to meet him later. We know Peter to be brash, we know him to be outspoken, we know him to be confident, maybe even a little bit arrogant. We know him to be a leader. We know that he is the only guy besides Jesus recorded in the Bible to have walked on open water and to have sunk in it. Maybe an issue of the overconfidence coming to light. Peter's also a little bit infamous. Not only did Peter have a great confidence in his faith and how much he loved Jesus and how there was nothing in the world that he wouldn't do for him, it turns out that when the heat got turned up, Peter is the one that infamously denied Jesus, not once, but three times the night before Jesus died. But Jesus, in his love for Peter, sets up an appointment with him. And he gives Peter an opportunity, not once, not two, but three times, one for each time that Peter denied, to profess his love for Jesus. And then Jesus sends him off to ministry as a result of that. That happened after Jesus had risen from the grave. Peter knew Jesus alive in the first 30 years of his life, or 33 years of his life. And Peter knew the risen Jesus. And when Peter writes, there is a truth to it, there is a belief to it, there is a depth to it that we need to pay attention to. We also know that on the day of Pentecost, Peter was there, and as the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit flooded out on the people, and, and the, the beginning of the Christian church saw its first day, Peter preached the second greatest Sermon in, in the history of sermon preaching. The first one was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I think we'd all probably agree on that. Peter was such a good preacher that it says 3,000 people were saved that day. 3,000 people. The by three, church grew by 3,000 people in one day. They gave their lives to Jesus. Peter became God's missionary to the Jews that were scattered out of Jerusalem when the persecution started. Paul, and you you can follow Paul's journeys. People left and the church began growing as as it left the Middle East, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. A lot of Peter's work was to the north, towards what we would now call Asia Minor or up into what we know as Europe. Peter was... Killed on a cross, he was crucified. The Bible says, he, he talks about it as in Babylon, and, and what that would mean is Rome. It was their their word for Rome, because it, uh, Rome had just become a terrible place. Uh, what the Bible says, though, was, was that Peter didn't just go to the cross for crucifixion by himself. His wife was actually crucified at the same time. And, and what's quite incredible about it is Peter told the people that we're going to crucify him Tradition says that he begged them not to be hung on a cross the way Jesus was. He said he wasn't worthy to die that way. And so Peter asked to be hung on a cross upside down. It also, tradition holds that his wife, who traveled as a missionary with him, was crucified on the same day. Can you imagine standing so strongly for your faith, believing so much that that you don't just believe for you, but that your spouse, pick the person closest to you, that the two of you are killed for your faith the same day? That's the man that wrote this book. Peter had distinct purposes and reasons for writing his letters. The first one was the persecution had begun and, and Christians had been scattered out of Jerusalem. He was trying to challenge, to encourage, and to strengthen the faith of what was very, very new believers. The church was growing but the believers didn't have the, the entirety of Scripture. They didn't have all of the New Testament. They didn't have everything that we have available to us. And so Peter is writing as an encouragement to them because they are being persecuted. They're being challenged for their faith. In fact, they and, and people near them are being killed because they believe in Jesus. He, he refers to their suffering like 16 times in his two letters. He's writing to people who are truly being persecuted because they're standing up for the name of Jesus in the midst of criticism and even the threat of death. And Peter writes this letter to these people who have very little to go on as a way of encouraging and supporting them and getting them to turn their focus to what is to come and what they know in Jesus. The background strikes me as significant because There's something a little bit similar happening in America today. We're not under the kind of persecution that is being talked about in the book of Peter that the first century Christians were under. And our suffering is nothing compared to theirs. However, the name of Jesus and and the fast traveling news of who Jesus was and his death and resurrection had spread out through the world and, and it had divided people. There were people who were not happy about the name of Jesus. They they didn't like the fact that people's lives were being dedicated to this man. And I don't know about you, but I have seen videos recently. And it's people marching in streets. And I don't know the language, and so I'm not going to get caught. I don't know if they're protests or riots or gangs or mobs. I'm not really sure. But the ones who have taken credit for these particular ones I'm going to talk about were BLM and Antifa. There, I said it. And what they're doing is profaning the name of Jesus. They're marching down the streets using the name of Jesus and profaning the name of Jesus. And the whole point is to get us as Christians angry. Make us afraid of what they might do to us for believing what we believe. And I watch them and I realize, while I'm frustrated that they have the right to do that, I realize why they have the right to do that. And I find myself more than anything praying for them because they're so blinded by their hatred And realizing what an incredible opportunity is being presented to Christians in America. I'm looking at this letter to Peter and I'm realizing the world that he's living in. And I think he's writing to people who are standing for the name of Jesus in the midst of crowds and mobs and gangs and, and other folks who are trying to frighten them for believing. And I think what an opportunity for us to stand in love for the name of Jesus Not to fight back, not to riot or protest back, but to stand in love for the name of Jesus before people who would shame us and who would profane His glorious name because what they're looking to do is to provoke a response. And it very quickly makes me think of of the thousands of soldiers and the hundreds or, or thousands even of policemen and women who have given their lives in the line of service so that those folks can have the right to do that. And I think back to Jesus' day, these very same people that are persecuting the church, Jesus came and willingly died for them too. They just rejected it. They didn't want any part of him. And I think those men and women who have given their lives so that those folks can protest and profane the name of Jesus in the streets, what it makes me realize is that they just simply can't handle the freedom. And what about us? It takes me back to a message that Pastor Jeff did a while ago, and he said, can you handle the freedom that you have in Christ? And I realize a lot of people can't handle the freedom they have in America. And so to me, it's a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity not to get involved in the hatred and the division and the divisiveness and the politics, but rather to stand on something that's lasting, and that is to stand on our faith in Jesus. And what Peter would say is, that's where our hope is. And so if you're one of those getting caught up in, in the Facebook tirades and arguments at work and everything else, you know what? People want to divide you. People want to call out the worst in you. You know, as a Christian, we have no place in that mud pit of dissension. Because Jesus is our hope. That's all. Peter writes of grace. Grace. He writes of grace in suffering, grace in persecution, of the grace of salvation, the grace of redemption, and the grace that carries us through life day after day after day, that it isn't us at all, that it's Jesus in us. He speaks strongly to the second coming of Jesus because he was there in the first resurrection from the dead, and he knows that Jesus is real. And he talks about our salvation and that our focus should be on the hope, not that we have in our best efforts, but our hope in Jesus. Clearly. Jesus' promised return of a second coming is at the forefront of Peter's mind, and he wants to make sure that we're all aware of it. Finally, Peter is writing to all of us who feel like we don't belong here. If you've ever felt like, I I, I don't even belong right now. It's the wrong century. It's the wrong time. I don't even know what I'm doing here. If you've ever had that feeling, you know what? The Bible would say you're absolutely right. You you don't belong here. You, You live here. But where you belong is heaven. see, we've got an eternity and this life we get to decide whether we go to heaven or hell and and who we believe that Jesus is and where we put our hope and trust is what is a part of that decision. Peter reminds us that our eternity is, as Christians, is really in a place called heaven. And we will never completely fit into this place. We are strangers and aliens. And that we do need to think of Christ's return because that is what will be a part of our going home to eternity. So as we dive into this part of 1 Peter, uh, I I read something I didn't know this week. The first 12 verses of 1 Peter, and if you've got your Bible, you can see what a chunk that is. Uh, In my Bible, that looks like this. It's basically an entire page as the first 12 verses. The first 12 verses was written as one sentence. All one, you know, you talk at school about don't have run on, uh, run on sentences. This is all intentionally one long run on sentence because that conveyed urgency. It conveyed intelligence. It conveyed purpose and it conveyed skill on the part of the writer and everybody who read it. The idea was is that you were going to spend as much time thinking about it as the writer put into crafting that one long sentence. So as we read first Peter, we need to really think deeply at it. We need to think of what it is that Peter is trying to really get across and not what we think we hear, but where are we really in the message that Peter is giving us? So you go to verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God, the Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sums it all up in what we have as the first verse. Just the simple part of the beginning of the first sentence, though. Here's the deal. Jesus was dead and in the grave. Peter knew it. He was there. And He was also there when Jesus rose from the grave. And part of what He would help us to understand is that just like we were dead in our sin... Jesus is alive. He's no longer in the grave. And those of us who put our faith in him, we've been born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. And the reason that the resurrection is so important to Peter is that was real to him. He was there, which means the living hope and the being born again are real. And so Peter keeps coming back over and over to this theme of hope in Jesus. And so the first thing I want to ask you, what do you put your hope in in this life? If you hope tomorrow or next month or next year are better than this year, what's the basis for your hope? You just hope that the dice turn out to be more in your favor? Do you hope you get a better hand of cards? Do you hope that you're going to somehow wake up and poof everything? What's the basis of your hope? If you have hope, what is it? Peter would say our hope is in Jesus. To have our hope anywhere else is absolutely wrong. See, Peter knew that the only hope that we have in this whole world was in the truth The reality, the unchanging fact of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And what was the point of all that? It was the purpose of your salvation and mine. Peter is writing this letter to these people that are being scattered and that are living in fear. But never once does does Peter say, be afraid. Never once does he say, run further. Never once does he say, you should be careful of the Romans and and even the Jewish folks. You know, the people you know, the families you grew up with, they're going to hate you because of Jesus. But he never says to be afraid because he knows that they are. He he never tells them that, that they don't have to. Instead, what he does is he focuses on the hope that they have. So often we face our day with fear, not with hope. Fear is what we think about and we don't see out of. We don't see a way out of our situation, and so we get afraid. Peter says, no, 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 focus on the hope that you have in Jesus. Look beyond your current circumstances. Jesus was resurrected from the grave, and you will be too. I think it's amazing when you think about Peter and and how he ended his life. This is how real these words are to him. And, And this is what tradition tells us along with a little bit of what Scripture tells us. That as Peter was being led off to crucifixion, he knew he was going to die on a cross. He knew he was going to be nailed to a cross. He'd seen Romans do it forever. In fact, Romans got so good at it, they were the ones that quit hanging people on crosses, mostly because they killed so many Christians that way and because they could keep them alive for so long. They realized it just it had gone beyond cruel. Peter knew he was going to die on a cross. And so what he said is, I don't deserve to die in a manner that was similar to my Lord. And so please hang me upside down. He didn't say, hang me on a cross or don't hang me on a cross. He said, if that's what you're going to do, then hang me upside down because I don't deserve to die like my Savior. But before they hung Peter on a cross, they let his wife out and they nailed her to a cross. And what's amazing to me is that what tradition holds is that Peter encouraged her with words of hope, her salvation, and her resurrection to a new life as she was being led to the cross. He didn't beg for them not to kill her. He didn't tell her not to be afraid. He reminded her of the very same things that he's reminding us of. This is a man that absolutely believes what he's saying. He's writing these words to you and I and to the people back then with absolute committed passion. So what is this thing? What, what is this? This uh, resurrection and, and the, the hope that we should have. Well, it's to an inheritance in verse four to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you know that as a Christian, your real inheritance doesn't happen to you on earth? It, we look forward to getting money from parents or relatives or grandparents or rich uncles or whatever it is. And we think, well, that's going to change. My life's going to get better when that happens. That's not a real inheritance because you know what? That's going to pass through your hands and it's going to go to someone else. I don't care if it's property or money. You're going to have it for a season and then it's going to someone else. And if that's the only inheritance you're worried about, you're missing the boat. He's saying our real inheritance A real inheritance is being kept for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Nothing can be done with it. Once it's given to you, it's yours for eternity. Your real inheritance is waiting for you in heaven. Now remember, Peter is saying this to a group of people that are facing the possibility of being killed for their faith. He's not joking around and and he's not preaching fluff. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. This is speaking about you as a believer. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your faith, do you know that doesn't even come from you? It's God's gift to you. Your faith comes through the Holy Spirit. That's why as disciples of Jesus who understand this, Paul was the one that says, I have no reason to boast. This very same Paul that says, live like me, be like me, watch what I do and be like me. And Paul even says, but I don't have a reason to boast. And the reason that we don't have a reason to boast is because whatever faith we have is a gift from God. And what happens in the church is that we look at different people and sometimes we assign them this status and sometimes they claim it. But we assign super Christian status to the most spiritual among us, don't we? See, the super Christians are the ones that they have got this unending quiver of Bible verse arrows that they can draw from. I mean, boom, they got a Bible verse for everything and they're all members memorized book, chapter, verse. If you're looking for that, that's not me. I admire people that can do that. I can remember a few, but I don't have thousands of the way some people I know do. And sometimes the super-Christians are just the one who claim by the very, their very life they live, they are more holy than everybody else. But in fact, any faith that we have isn't ours to boast about. The faith that we have is a gift from God. So there are no super-Christians. In fact, what there are are super-sinners who are saved by a humble servant-savior any point that you reach in your faith, you may work hard to get there, but it is all a gift of the Holy Spirit to you. Verse 6, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved for various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Basically, what he's talking about is life isn't going to be easy as a believer. You're going to face trials. You're going to face temptations. Things aren't always going to go your way. But you know what? God's going to carry you through. He's speaking to people who are truly experiencing persecution. We live in the United States, and I'm hearing more and more people talk about how Christians are suffering and being persecuted. No, we're not. That is an affront to these first century Christians and people all around the world that are truly being persecuted and suffering for their faith. It might be inconvenient for us. You know about the worst persecution that that I've really heard of anybody in our area is someone being confronted for why they believe in Jesus and the person saying, well, yeah, not that much. I just go to church once in a while. We don't really understand suffering and persecution. We may. Before our lifetime's over, we may understand it. But if you've experienced trials and your faith's been tested, welcome to life. That's what life is like. But in the end... What Peter would would say in in my words is that you will come to the end of yourself and that's the beginning of being able to thank God for Jesus and to give Jesus all the praise and all the glory and all the honor because that's where it goes. That testing, those troubles, those bumpy spots and those people who confront you. You know what? When we stand up for Jesus the way Peter is writing a letter to people who are standing up for Jesus, God uses all of that to grow our faith. Verse nine, though you've not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Peter had seen Jesus. He knew he was real. He had spent day and night with him for three years. He had also seen the resurrected Jesus. But he's talking to a lot of people who are believing the firsthand testimony about Jesus. You and I, we haven't seen Jesus in person the way that Peter has. John actually talks about this in verse 20. Here's his word to us. Chapter 20 of John, verse 29, Jesus said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you and I. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you believe... Because someone represented him to you in such a way that you wanted to know him and your personal experience with him brought you to the point where you say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a savior. Jesus, I give my life to you. You now become a Christian, a new creation, and you begin the process of learning to be a disciple. See, what Peter's talking about is hope. It's the outcome of our faith, the result of our faith. And what is that? It's all due to our salvation in Jesus, our, our souls are saved because of what Jesus did for us. We spend the rest of our lives working out that salvation in fear and trembling. He's preaching hope to people who are living in the midst of persecution. He's not telling them to run further away. He's not teaching them how to hide better. He's not teaching them how to, how to fight back. And he's not saying, don't be afraid. He's teaching them hope in the midst of all of that. So where do we go with all of it? If you jump ahead a little bit to verse 13, it says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's where what we do matters. The book of James in the New Testament is a book of what we do. Some people don't like it because they say, well, our good works don't get us to heaven. Absolutely true. But how do you work out what we read in the Bible? How do you work out our salvation? How do you put the words of the Bible into practice? James helps us do that. He says, this is how you live. Peter is talking about the very same thing. We start by preparing our minds, because that's where it begins. We, we, we've got to start up here, because once we get it clear up here, that, then it can sink down here, and that's when it settles in and it stays forever. You can believe in Jesus, you can know who Jesus is, but you can also not necessarily know Jesus. And what Peter is talking about is the action, the preparing our minds Preparing our minds for action. He says, be sober-minded. Not just sober, but sober-minded. Why? So that we can set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Again, he's preaching grace. Despite persecution, you will experience grace. Whatever you're going through in your life right now, you're not going through it without God. God is aware. Jesus has already been there. And Peter says the grace that will that will be brought to you. See, if you find yourself nervous, find yourself afraid, find yourself caught up in the politics of our day, I would ask you to challenge yourself with where your hope is. Is your hope in Jesus or is in your hope in your worry? Maybe your hope is in choosing the right candidate and getting that man or woman elected. See, here's the thing. Our hope cannot be in the politics of our day because the politics of our day are fleeting. If you don't believe me, look at where our nation was 50 years ago compared to where it was today. Look at where it was 10 years ago to where it was today. The politics are fleeting. The hope of Jesus is eternal. If you're pinning your hope for the next four years on who's elected president, if you're pinning your hope on who it is that gets approved as the next Supreme Court justice, if you're pinning your hope on any political candidate from any party anywhere in this country, Your hope is hopeless. It matters. Don't get me wrong. It matters. Who gets elected matters. It's why it is so important that we vote according to our faith, not according to our personal feelings. What I've said before, when it comes to elections, I'll keep saying over and over and over. If people know you by your political party, not by the fact that you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, there's a problem. There's a problem. If they know your politics, but they don't know your faith, you're doing something wrong. If our hope is in who gets elected, we really have very little hope at all. As a Christian, Peter wants to remind us that our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Then he says this in verse 14, as obedient children. Interesting, since he's writing to a whole group of adults. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. How about that? That's a big move. He's not trying to impress these people. He's not trying to win their audience. He's speaking truth. He refers to the new believers as obedient children. He's assuming their obedience and he's calling them children. And we're not to be conformed. We're not to be shaped to the passions and the sins that go along with those passions. Here's the thing. I've read more than once now. The average dad in the U.S. spends less than three minutes with his kids in meaningful conversation a week. Do you realize that? Less than three minutes a week with your kids. Which means that you're sending your kids off to school or you sent your kids off to college. Somebody is shaping their mind. Somebody other than you is shaping their mind. Their thinking is being conformed to whoever is investing in them. And if it isn't you, you don't have much to say about it. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be shaped to the passions of this world, because what goes with those passions is sin. I love the way he uses the word former. Your former ignorance. Former is exactly what it should be for us. That's why we, we need to understand that we're a new creation in Jesus and that we're always under construction. We're always under construction. The old us prior to becoming a new creation, that's the former self. That's our former ignorance. But now we know we have a new hope. We have a new understanding. He says we should no longer be ignorant of what is right in God's eyes. And if we're not ignorant, then what should follow is that we'll also be obedient. See, Peter is helping us just like James is helping us, just like Paul is helping us. Peter is helping us in the new creation construction project. There's our next T-shirt, by the way, new creation construction, right? Peter is helping us to understand what it means to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We become a new creation immediately, but we work it out for the rest of our lives. See, being called children isn't necessarily the worst thing. I mean, we throw temper tantrums against God, don't we? We've pretty much all done it at one point or another. God didn't listen to my prayer. God didn't do what I asked. And we think of God as a genie in the bottle. If we pray enough, he's going to do exactly what we want him to do. That's not God's promise at all. God promises that he'll hear and he'll act in his best interest according to his will for our lives, not ours. So we throw temper tantrums against God. No wonder we're called children. But you know what? The Bible also uses different language. It uses the language of adoption talking about us as we become Christians. It says that we're adopted into God's family. Right away, That God's family, the chosen people, were the people of Israel. But now you and I, we're adopted into God's family. I had someone talk to me last week and they they shared an example. And it was so spot on for this example today. He talked about a a father that had biological children and had adopted children. And he talked about this is what it is, adopted kids, to be a part of this family. And it was absolutely beautiful. I hope I get it close to right. He says, you know, you, you were chosen. You were chosen to be a part of this family. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we were chosen. God's desire is that everyone comes to a saving knowledge of him, but not everybody does. But it talks about us as being chosen. And he says, you know, because you were chosen, you're immediately a part of this family in every way, in in every privilege, responsibility and advantage. You are you are just completely a part of this family. You don't have to work to earn a place. You don't have to work to earn my love. I love you just as the same as I love all my other children. I love all the kids in the family as much, and and you get to enjoy all the privileges of being a part of this family. And as a part of this family, you're expected to live by the same rules. You're expected to have the same respect and love for other people. It's an expectation of how it is you'll conduct yourselves and how you will represent the family when you go out into the world. See, how they live their lives is a statement of what family they belong to. And the dad wanted them to know that. They didn't have to work to earn his love. They didn't have to work to earn his place. I think that's such a beautiful example of what it is becoming a Christian. We don't have to work to earn God's love. We don't have to work to earn our place. But when we go out into the world, we represent that family. We represent the family that we've been adopted into. Verse 15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the part that Peter wants us to be clear about. We are to be holy in all that we do. Could you imagine if you had people out there who were crashing down the door of your house, and your neighbor's house, pulling you out into the street, beating you silly, killing some of, uh, uh, of your friends and neighbors? That's who Peter's writing to. And what Peter is saying is you are to be holy in all that you do. You are to be holy in all that you do. All of our conduct, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our interactions are to be holy. Why? Why should we care about being holy to make a good name for ourselves? No. After all, being holy isn't natural and it isn't easy for us. We naturally migrate to the sides of being not holy and sinners. We should be holy because the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who sent his only son to die for our sinfulness is holy. That is why we're called to be holy. See, if we accept the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins and and we accept the promise of salvation and the eternity in heaven, our response should be to be holy as God is holy. Because we're a part of a new family now. We take on a new family's name. Peter's writing to this scattered group of believers that are very new to the Christian faith. They're trying to figure out what it means. They're they're trying to figure out how to live this way. And, and, And for a lot of them, the first thing that they see, the only thing that they've seen, is to become a Christian and to be known as a Christian means that people hate you. That's the world that they're living in. And Peter's trying to help them to focus on hope and eternity and Jesus they're being challenged for their faith. They're being treated incredibly cruelly and some of them are being killed. And his message for them isn't don't be afraid. Isn't that it's all going to get better. It's fine. It's a passing moment. His message is that the reason for your hope and a call to live in holiness is on each one of us because the God who saves us is holy. So, so what, what should be our takeaway? Well, the reason for our hope and the realizing that the same call is on us to live lives of holiness, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And because of the family that we've been adopted, to and now, adopted into and now we represent with the witness that is our lives. And so here's the deal. If you're a Christian, if you've accepted the free gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers you, it didn't cost you anything but a thank you. Literally. Thank you, Jesus. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I recognize that you died for my sins. Thank you. Your sins are forgiven, but then it's this prepare our minds. We begin that life by repenting. We turn from our old selves. We don't continue to be the people that we were because we realize that we've taken on a new name. We've got a new family name. We've been adopted into a new family. The new name that you carry out into the world, the family that you represent is Christian, Christ follower, disciple of your Savior. Suddenly, that whole idea of being holy because He is holy takes on a whole nother level. So if you've accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, if you've, if you've received the forgiveness of your sins, you've also taken on a new name, and that new name is Christian. You've been adopted into God's family. And Peter wants to help us understand how it is that we live our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to God, whose name we take on. So the next four weeks, and I'd encourage you to just read one chapter of 1 Peter each week going forward. Next week we're going to be in chapter 2. If you didn't read chapter 1, read all of it this week. Get into chapter 2, read chapter 2, and uh, you can kind of figure out how you would preach it. And then we'll get back next week and we'll do it all over again and, and move forward. But before we get that far, let's pray. God, thank you for Peter. Thank you for the front row witness that he had to the life and to the death and to the resurrection and to the newly resurrected Jesus. Thank you that all of those things were so real to him. That relationship that he had with Jesus was so real that he spent the rest of his life up until his horrible death wanting to help people understand how real Jesus is, who he was, and how we can live for him. God, sometimes it just seems impossible to think that we could ever be a good example for you. And on our own, truly we cannot. But God, for every one of us who has accepted the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins from Jesus. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us, that we would choose to be holy. We would want to be holy. We would work to be holy, not because it makes us look good, but because you are holy and you are worth nothing less. And God, for anybody who might be listening right now who, who realizes that they're a sinner, they've been living their life in a way that's, that's totally choosing to do things on their own. And they're realizing, God, that it just isn't working very well. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would just become so real in them that they would choose to lay down their life, lay down their will for yours for them, for to be who you created them to be, that they would accept the gift of salvation that's offered in Jesus' death and resurrection, and that they would they would understand what it meant to be your former self because you created us a new person. So, God, I just pray that you would be so real that you would move in people's hearts that if you're calling them to you, that... that that they would just lay down their own will and they would take up yours. God, thank you for what you do in us and with us and through us every day. Thank you for Jesus, for the price that he paid for our sin, and thank you for raising him from the grave to do what we cannot do for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.